So I am Isaac. I know most of you. Um, I'm looking around. There's probably a couple of folks I haven't gotten to know yet. So hopefully at these events or something, I'll get to meet you and get to know you. Um, so I'm thankful to be able to preach the word with you today. It's a great privilege. Um, the Bible is the is so precious, um, and it's God's word to us. So, as we get started, I want to share with you a story about joy, because we're going to talk about joy today. Joy is the second fruit of the Spirit. So, during World War II, one Christian family in the Netherlands put up a great resistance to help the Jewish people that were under attack from the Nazis. They hid many Jews in their homes and helped them to escape to safety. Corey Tenboom and her family were arrested in 1944 by the Nazis after a Dutch informant ratted them out. After being moved between prisons, Corey and her sister Betsy were sent to the dreaded Ravensbrück concentration camp where they were forced to do back-breaking labor in filthy conditions. Corey, along with most of the women, grew to despise her Nazi captors. They showed no mercy to the sick or elderly, but worked them nearly to death. Her sister Betsy, however, was like a beacon of light in the dark walls of Ravensbrook. She possessed an unquenchable joy that surprised all the women around her. She even had a heart of love for their captors, desiring to help them see the truth and to see their souls saved. Before Betsy died of the difficult conditions in Ravensbrook, she often had told her sister, There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Corey herself made it out later to tell their story. We'd all love to have the same happiness as Betsy Ten Boom. It's the same even through the greatest suffering. But how is such happiness possible? Most of the time, our happiness comes and goes with our circumstances. When you get that raise that you've been waiting for, or receive a kind word from a friend, it's easy to be happy. But imagine if you were in Ravensbrook with the Ten Booms. There's a better way than trying to be optimistic, and that's through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to cultivate joy in each of us. It might seem impossible, but through the work of the Spirit, you and I can experience lasting joy. So joy is the second fruit of the Spirit, and we're studying it today as a part of our summer series on the fruit of the Spirit, as Clay said. And just a quick review, remember that the two keys to understanding the fruit of the Spirit are that the fruit of the Spirit is the character of Christ, and the fruit of the Spirit is the work of the Spirit in us. So it's Christ's character and the work of the Spirit in us. Today, we're going to ask and answer five questions about the fruit of joy that will help us to follow the Spirit 
and to cultivate joy in our lives? The first question is, what is joy? Two, what does joy look like in action? Three, what are some common threats to joy? Four, what do we need to know if we're going to cultivate joy? And five, how do we cultivate joy? So let's jump right into it and go into question number one. What is joy? We definitely need to learn what joy is so that we can pursue what the Spirit has for us here. So let's start with a definition of joy. It's important to know what Paul means about joy when he's telling us to cultivate it. So the definition I've put together here And I'll repeat this a couple of times. Joy is a state of gladness that flows from our hope in Christ, comes from the Spirit, and finally persists in difficulties. So, joy is a state of gladness that flows from our hope in Christ, comes from the Spirit, and persists in difficulties. We're going to go through this definition. We'll use it as we consider how we can grow in the fruit of joy. Let's look at three things from the definition to set up the rest of our study. The first is that joy is gladness or happiness. Not just any kind of happiness, though. It's a happiness from, that comes from knowing how, God's love, how God loves you and believing God's love for you. The second thing that I want to highlight is that joy comes from our hope in Christ. The Bible tells us to rejoice in hope, Romans 12, 12. Our hope is both that God loves us in Christ continually, and through Christ we have a future hope in the new creation. Right now and forever, we have the love of God through the sacrifice of Jesus. Not only do we have God's love in Jesus, but his resurrection has purchased a better and abiding possession for us. We can see that in Hebrews 10, 34. One day, the curse will be removed, and we will receive our full inheritance and be with Jesus face to face. Our joy is in Christ. Finally, the state of joy comes from the Spirit. We can't stir it up by our own effort. Like every fruit of the Spirit, it's the Spirit himself who gives us the ability to have joy. Without him, trying to have joy is like trying to drive your car somewhere without having gas. You're not going to be able to do it. And finally, joy is sustained... Sorry, I'm on to the third part now. Joy is sustained through hardship. It's more than a gladness that comes from normal good things of life, like enjoying good food or receiving a hug from someone you love. Those are all good, but they're temporary. We might have good circumstances for a while, but sooner or later, we'll each face difficulty and hardship. Many of you right now may be facing 
difficulties and, being, and, and are hurting. And what's happening to you feels painful and disheartening, um, not joyful. True joy will sustain us through these things. So the three parts that make up our definition are joy is a state of gladness that flows from our hope of Christ, comes from the Spirit, and persists in difficulties. So now that we've learned what joy is, we can move to the second question I want to answer today. And that is, what does joy look like? Or what are some practical examples of joy in action? These examples will help us understand what the joyful lives of people look like and how we can be joyful. I want to start with probably the the most important example, and that's the sacrificial joy of Jesus. Who better to look to to know joy than our Savior himself? In John 15, 11, Jesus tells us that it's his joy he gives to us. So if he gives us his joy, we should know what his joy is. Though Jesus experienced many sorrows, he was a man of joy, which drew many people to him. He faced trials in his life, and the ultimate trial in his death and sacrifice for our sins. Though he was pushed to the physical limit often, like when we find him sleeping in the boat um, in the middle of a storm, he never lashed out at anybody with sinful anger or never was fearful in the midst of his circumstances. How did Jesus respond in the worst circumstance he faced in the garden when he faced the weight of sin and was wondering and, and felt that huge burden upon himself? He didn't fall to sinful fear or anger but he brought his cares to the Father, and he asked for another way. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. He trusted God and his good will. How could Jesus stay joyful through the cross and through all, all the sin that he bore? Hebrews 12.2 tells us that he despised the shame of the cross for the joy set before him. He rejoiced that through his death he would defeat Satan and bring deliverance to us who were captives to sin and to death. He trusted in God's goodness and looked to the future good even as his circumstances were difficult and painful. So next, let's look at Paul's laboring joy. The laboring joy of Paul. Paul provides another helpful example of joy. Let's consider when he wrote the letter to the Philippian church. He was in prison in Rome because of the gospel. Now, when we read about Paul in Acts, we see him on the move for Christ's kingdom, planting churches left and right, looking to share the gospel with anyone who will listen. But as he writes to the Philippians, he seems to be stuck unable to do his normal work. Not only that, but rival preachers were trying to tinder his reputation, trying to smear Paul. However, despite his circumstances, he stayed on mission. Paul's hope was set on Jesus. In Philippians 3, 8-12, 
Paul says that nothing is more important than knowing Jesus. And then in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, he actively rejoices when he considers the good God is working through his imprisonment. This would be an easy time to despair, but Paul instead rejoices in the advance of Christ. We, like Paul, may be put in situations that tempt us or challenge what we are expecting, but we must fix our eyes on the faithfulness of Christ. We must trust that he's working all things for our good, as Romans 8.28 tells us. A final example from church history I want to share one more example from church history with you. And that's the story of Pastor Richard Wormbrandt. For those of you who don't know Richard Wormbrandt, he um, was a pastor in Romania at the time of the Nazis and the communists. He experienced some of the most horrific things anyone ever could. He was thrown in prison after proclaiming that communism was not compatible with Christianity. And he was greatly tortured for standing for his faith. In fact, he was in prison for over eight years because of his stand for the gospel. His communist captors constantly tried to force a confession of atheism from his lips. He and fellow believers were beaten, cut, even frozen, among many other tortures. Yet one thing that shocked me about Richard and these believers was their love for their captors. Any chance they got, they would preach the good news. They didn't hate those that had tortured them. They saw them as deceived in need of salvation. Richard and his fellow Christians had hope because of heaven, because of the salvation of Jesus. He had given them everything. This is what sustained them. Now that we've seen some examples of joy and action, let's think through some of the threats to joy in our own lives. So what are some common threats to joy? I want to just consider a few of them here. There might be other ones that you face, but I think um, as we go through the list... Hopefully one or two will stand out to you. Think through that. Um, I'm going to talk about the threat and then some of the lies that go with it. You know, what's behind the threat that might deceive us. And then what's a truth that we can take to fight against the lies and to overcome the threat. The first that I want to talk about is discontentment. Discontentment is clearly a threat to Christian joy. If we aren't satisfied with what God gives us, we won't be able to rejoice. This is because joy is satisfied with whatever God gives, and it trusts in God to sustain. A lie here is I need X. I need this thing to be happy. I can't be happy if I don't have this one thing. This is just temporary happiness that's based on how my circumstances are going. We know life is full of up and downs, 
And if we think we deserve happy circumstances, we're going to be upset and unable to rejoice when God brings his will to us, which not only includes easy times and good times, but also trials and difficulties. 1 Peter 1, 3-9 combats the lie by telling us that trials are used by God for good. Now, this is personally something that challenges me. When I face difficulties in work or school, I'm often tempted to run from, run from the trials. I can forget that these things are from God for my good. I've been reminded this week that I can trust God with what he brings into my life. So I can't run from these difficult things. Jesus will take care of me as he'll take care of each and every one of you. Secondly, anxiety and fear is another hindrance. Fear and anxiety will choke out our joy because they don't trust God. There's two potential lies here. Either I can rejoice without dealing with my fears, or I'm stuck in my fear, so I'll never be able to experience the joy of Christ. Both are false. We need to cast our cares upon Christ. He can handle them, and he'll care for us. You can look at uh, Matthew chapter 6, the end of Matthew chapter 6, or 1 Peter 5, 7 to combat this lie. So we need to face our fears and repent of them before we can rejoice. Thirdly, another hindrance to joy is selfish ambition or preeminence. If, we're, if we desire to be first, we're only going to be happy if, if we're on top. That's going to kill our joy because our hope is based on position which is going to change at any time. There's no way to guarantee that you'll have this position that you want. The lie here is that I need, I need to be first. I've got to be first to be happy. This is not what the Bible tells us. Instead, we've got to repent of a desire for preeminence if we're going to rejoice. Um, Philippians 2 is really helpful here. Uh, Paul talks about putting others before ourselves in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4. The next one is envy or jealousy. So this is the other side of preeminence. So just like preeminence has to be first, what happens when others are first and take what we want? We become jealous of them, and our joy is destroyed. There's no place for lasting joy here. The lie is, I need what they have to be happy. Is that true? It's not. We become upset when others get what we want. And so, we become envious and we lose our joy. As long as we're nursing envy, we won't rejoice. We must repent of it. Next is bitterness. If we become embittered, if someone sins against us and we don't go to them and seek reconciliation, 
we're going to have a holdup, a dam that will come against our joy. Bitterness is going to squeeze out any joy we have. If we don't forgive and seek reconciliation, we're not going to have joy. Reconciliation actually will open the floodgates for joy as we seek restoration with those who have sinned against us. And here you can look at Ephesians 4, verses 31 through 32. And finally, and this is a broad one, um, we will be hindered if we have unconfessed sin in our life. Sin promises a lot, right? It promises joy and pleasure. It seems good in the time. But it never satisfies its promise. It only leads to guilt and discouragement. We will be without joy if we don't confess our sin to the Lord. A lie here might be, well, I'm stuck in my sin, so I can never be joyful. We'll talk about that a little bit at the end. Um, But here you can go to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 tells us that the path to true joy is actually confessing and repenting of our sin. That's the path to happiness. So, I've just shared a bunch of difficulties and hindrances, and if you're like me, uh, at one time or another, all of those characterize you. Uh, it, it can be discouraging when we look at the, the sin in our life um, and what keeps us from joy. You know, we're all prone to trust in ourselves. I know I am. But the good thing is that God doesn't leave us in our sin. God doesn't leave us without hope. Jesus came so that we'd have abundant life, and he gives us hope for change in his word. So now that we've seen these hindrances, um, where's the hope? We're going to go to now our fourth question about joy. So question number four, what do we need to know if we're going to cultivate joy? What's the truth that we need to motivate us to be joyful, to follow the Spirit as he works? And again, just as with our illustrations at the beginning, the main answer is Jesus. It starts with knowing that Jesus is a happy Savior. So I want to ask you a question. How do you think about Jesus? Do you think he's disappointed with you? Or frustrated when you sin? Do you think of him as maybe lacking joy or always, always upset with you when you fail and you sin? Because we all do. Now, if you think these things, I'm sorry, but I have to correct you in love here. This is just not true. We're dead wrong if we believe that Jesus is disappointed with us. Even though we sin, when we come back to him, he is right there to receive us. He wants you to come to him, and he offers a better way. He is gentle and lowly heart, gentle and lowly in heart, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 tells us. Not only that, how does Jesus respond to sinners that come back in repentance? 
not with not without emotion or not um, frustration. Oh, you, you know, well, you better get it right next time. He rejoices. Um, I'd encourage you, if this is something that, that is difficult for you, to go and read Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 has three parables about the joy um, of Jesus and repentance. And I think especially meaningful to us is, is the story of the prodigal son. Jesus is that father who runs back to receive, receive the son, and we're that son. Whenever we sin, we're broken, and we're, our relationship can feel like it's severed from God. But when we, when we turn back to Jesus, he's running. He's running to receive us. He's committed to us. And Romans 8 tells us that there's nothing that can separate us from his love. Romans 8, 35 and 37 through 39. Jesus wants us to share in his joy. Perhaps the most significant truth about joy is that Jesus has given his own joy to us. And he desires for our joy to be full. Please turn to John chapter 15 with me. In this part of John, Jesus has been enjoying the Passover with his disciples. And he's teaching them one final time before they go out to the garden and he's arrested and goes to the cross. He's just told them in John chapter 15 before we read that he's the source of life and that the disciples must abide in him to bear fruit. In our passage, he teaches them that the fruit, that part of the fruit he desires to produce in them is just like we're learning about today, and that's the fruit of joy. So let's read John 15, 9 through 11 together. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The truth we need is that joy is from Jesus. We must learn how joyful Jesus is and receive the gift of joy he gives to us. We must learn to renew our minds daily in this truth so that we'll come to him after we sin and repent and believe that he loves us. The joy of Jesus is a constant joy. Not only that, but joy can be cultivated because we have the Holy Spirit. It's possible because of the Spirit. Jesus wants us to share in his joy, so he's given us his Spirit. We have the ability to obey and cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, including joy, because the Holy Spirit is at work in us right now. True joy is something that's possible. It's even guaranteed by Jesus. Philippians 
Ephesians 1.14 tells us that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit at salvation. And in Romans 6, we learn that we're no longer under the dominion of sin. Because of this, we can now seek to grow in joy of the Spirit. It's not something we can conjure up in our own strength, but it, and it's not possible for the unbeliever. But we're commanded to pursue growth because of the Spirit's work in us. Philippians 2, 12-13 tell us that we have the ability to work, our, work out our salvation or to grow in Christ because it's God's Spirit that's at work in us. So next, joy is sustained through difficulty and hardship. Jesus uses trials to enhance our joy. The joy that gives us sustains even through persecution. The joy of Jesus defies logic. Why would someone rejoice in persecution? How could someone like Richard Wormbrandt or Betsy Ten Boom have joy? Because they know the reward for their persecution is great. In Matthew 5 and Luke uh, Matthew 5.12 and Luke 6.23 tell us this. Jesus also uses our trials to enhance our joy by making us mature through them. See James 1.2-4. Not only that, will Jesus use trials to enhance our joy and um, do we need to know that, Jesus, that love is from him? He will also use our joyful disposition for the good of others. Our joy is contagious to those around us. Um, When we're joyful around other believers, and when we point them to Jesus and his joy, it's going to infect others around us. If I'm satisfied with God's joy, then I can be a better friend to the believers around me, and I can remind them of God's love for me. our joy will be uplifting to those around us, to fellow believers. Joy also gives us a special witness to unbelievers. Unbelievers have no true joy or ultimate happiness. So when they see us and our joy in Jesus, that'll stand out to them. When you and I learn to trust Jesus and grow steadily in our joy we'll find that gospel opportunities come out of our joy and of our witness to unbelievers. We're going to have an opportunity to share the hope that is within us, as 1 Peter 3.15 says. Now, I hope that you, like me, are encouraged to pursue joy after we've seen how important it is. Now that we're motivated to pursue it, we'll ask and answer one last question. Question five, and this is where the rubber meets the road. So with all these things, how do we cultivate joy? What are the steps that we can take to grow in it? So here, um, I want to remind you of one key thing. And something I've been saying uh, this whole time. 
And you've got to seek after Jesus. Jesus is the source. You must believe that he says who he is he is. Says, you must believe that he is who he says. If we try to be happy on our own, instead of going to Jesus, we'll be joyless. We must go back to the scripture to see our Savior and his love on display. He died for you. Go back to this truth when you are tempted to despair or as other sins try to snuff out your joy. Nothing can change your status as a child of God. You've got to run to Jesus and run to his love every day. When you sin, throw yourself on his mercy and confess it to him. So to help us practice joy, I'm going to go through an example from my life. Um, And this is an area that I'm learning to put joy into practice. So probably the biggest area for me has been uh, where I've been learning to cultivate joy is in work. Um, And there's two things that have really come up, uh, come up in front of my face and stood out like a neon sign. I'm tempted to not have joy um, when I'm doing monotonous tasks that seem mindless and they don't seem to have any purpose. And in this, I'm tempted to complain and give a half-hearted effort. This would be cheating my boss and sinning against the Lord. But instead, I can rejoice that our good and gracious God takes care of me and provides for my needs. Secondly, I struggle to have joy when I mess up at work and look foolish in front of my boss and those that I work with. In both of these situations, I've got to go back to Jesus. So here, I need to renew my mind in the truth. And what's that? The truth is that I'm, and all of us here are adopted. If, you, if you're in Christ, you're an adopted child of God. So, when my, so my sinful fear about messing up at work and others' opinions of me, that doesn't define me. You can see Romans 8. 15 through 17 on that. I'm free to seek to please Jesus in my work and to trust in the moment that he's working good, even if it doesn't feel good to me. Uh, I call this my faith over feelings moment. Um, And what's been really helpful there is the truth of Galatians 2.20. We live by faith. After I renew my mind, I choose to rejoice. With my work scenario, when I was not joyful, I would focus on my circumstances and feel sorry for myself. Now, I choose joy, and I strive, instead of looking at me and being sorry for me, to encourage my coworkers and thank, thank God for what he's doing in them, for his good work there. When I experience challenges at work, instead of complaining... I can praise God for his faithfulness to grow me through trials and encourage um, my fellow workers when they face trials. Uh, when, when my eyes are off myself and, off and, and look outward instead of inward, I'll be open to the needs of others. I'll be able to love and care for them instead of, instead of being all caught up in my own, um, my own sorrows, which is not what God has for us.
If my spiritual eyes are open, I can see that God is cultivating humility and growing me in my skills when I fail and mess up and, and learn to grow. These are both good things to rejoice in. So now, now that I've shared that, um, think about how you can cultivate joy in the different circumstances of your life. So maybe, um, and you know, now we have a, most of us are in jobs for the summer, if you weren't before, um, and you probably live with, you know, live with some people, whether roommates or family. How can you cultivate joy in those situations? How can you be joyful and, um, and love those around you? Um, there's lots of opportunities to rejoice. So think about there. Um, think about how you can cultivate that joy. So now as we come to a close, I've said a lot of things about joy, right? But the one thing I want to stick with you um, is that joy is the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit is committed to cultivating joy and producing it in us. Because of this, I'm encouraged to persevere and to seek to cultivate joy. The Holy Spirit will work in us as we seek to cultivate joy. His transforming work makes it possible for me to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. And He's the one who fuels the effort and makes it effective. And of course here, we're still responsible to cultivate this fruit along with the other fruits of the Spirit, and that's why Paul commands us to walk by the Spirit. So we want to remember that this is from the Spirit, but then also that gives us the ability to move forward, to actually strive to grow in this. So we do this by obeying his word in faith and trusting him. And you might be saying, Isaac, <laughs> I've really failed here. How, how can I respond? This seems impossible. And I'll say to you, friend, we can still go back to ground zero. We can go to Jesus and his precious gospel message to us. It's the same way every time we confess our sins to the Lord, who will forgive us and restore us. Once we have confessed, the judgment of sin is separated from us as far as the east is from the west. then we must humble ourselves and ask for the Spirit to work in us as we strive to cultivate the spiritual disciplines. Again, remember Philippians 2, 12 through 13. He works in us. That's why we, can, why we can do this. In Romans 6, sin no longer has dominion over us. We're not defeated. And if this is extra hard for you to be joyful, don't lose heart. You may still feel crushing depression that seems impossible to overcome. But remember, Jesus has promised that he won't leave you or he won't forsake you. He's still there and he cares for you in whatever difficulty or hardship you're going through, no matter, no matter how hopeless it seems. 
He's promised to complete the good work that he began in us. Philippians 1, 6 tells us. If you're um, the person that is struggling with crippling depression, uh, sometimes it's so heavy it feels like we can't get out. I'd encourage you to, to talk with someone, um, especially a leader in Boundless or one of your friends that knows the truth and loves the Lord. Um, we'd love to help you um, to turn to Christ and to see that even the, the hardest depression, um, for those of us with the hardest depression, joy is possible. True joy is possible in Christ. Um, I mean, I've had, I've had times where I've fallen into deep, uh, well, I shouldn't say deep, but into depression, and um, the Lord's always been faithful to bring me out of it. So the body of Christ is designed to care for each other. The Spirit tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Our friends and fellow church members are ready to be served and loved with joy. Just being part of the church and loving other people at the church is a wonderful way to go, grow together. So, let's go and be the church together. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your joy that you give to us. Thank you that joy is not in ourselves. It's not something um, that we just have to work up, and, and that's an encouraging truth for those who are right now in the midst of depression and um, sorrow. Um, Lord, you know their situation. I ask that you comfort them and help them, um, encourage them. Um, please cultivate this fruit in our lives. Um, help us to to grow here, um, for we have your spirit. Um, I pray that we would walk in joy and know your joy as we go out today. I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. You are dismissed. <laughs>